Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. Translator Laura Maris, my guest in this episode, had long wanted to translate Albert Camus' The Plague, his novel about a fictional pestilence that afflicted the Algerian coastal city of Oran, sealing it off from the rest of the world, reshaping the lives of everyone in it, testing them, causing them to forget the existence they had once been able to lead. Camus worked on the book in Oran during the Second World War. By the time it was published in 1947, Laura wrote in the New York Times, writers were looking for a way to bear witness to the Nazi occupation of France, and the plague was championed as a novel of the occupation and the resistance. For Camus, illness was both his lived experience and a metaphor for war, the creep of fascism, the horror of Vichy France collaborating in mass murder, unquote. The book went on to become one of the best-selling French novels of the century, and its demonstrated staying power. Perhaps because, as Roger Lowenstein said in the Washington Post in 2020, it's a redemptive book, one that wills the reader to believe, even in a time of despair. For decades, English-speaking readers have encountered Camus' book in Stuart Gilbert's translation. That's how I first read it as a teenager some 40 years ago. The trouble is, Gilbert, a classicist by training and an early Joyce scholar, succumbed to the temptation to embroider Camus' text. To cite just one example, mentioned in Laura's translator's note, when Camus says, Il fallait recommencer, they must begin again, Gilbert offers, they must set their shoulders to the wheel again. And so Laura found herself working on her translation in Buffalo in early 2020, shortly after making a research trip to Oran. Writing in April 2020, she said, Toward the end of January, I began to notice a strange echo between my work and the news. A mysterious virus had appeared in the city of Wuhan, and though the virus resembled previous diseases, there was something novel about it. The pace of my work and the pace of the virus were eerily similar. Perceiving more and more parallels between novel and news, she goes on, I felt a fissure open up between the page and the world, like a curtain lifted from a two-way mirror. When I looked at the text, I saw the world behind it, the ambulance sirens of Bergamo, the quarantine of Hubei province, the odd disjunction between spring flowers at the market and hospital ships in the news. It was, and is, very difficult to focus, to navigate between each sentence and its real-time double, to find the fuzzy edges where these reflections meet. We talked more in this interview, recorded in December 2021, about the correspondences between the book and a time of global pandemic. And recording this today, as Russian forces seem to be preparing to encircle the Ukrainian capital, cutting its people off from the outside world, forcing them back on their own resources, their own defences, it's hard to avoid thinking that Camus' novel has tragic resonances that go beyond the Nazi occupation of France or the Covid pandemic. I began my conversation with Laura by asking her about her visit to Oran, the city which constitutes the entire world of the novel and whose atmosphere is so important to its texture. Was this something she felt she needed to do, or was it just something that was interesting to do? 
Yeah, it was something I felt was pretty necessary. <laughs> In part because it's such a book of walking. Um, the characters are always walking through the city. And though, of course, the contemporary city is nothing like it was in Camus' time under, you know, French colonial occupation. But there's still all these landmarks of the book. And, and there's actually this wonderful organization in Oran called Belle Horizon. And my friend Abdel, Abdelhaq, who, who runs it, he does these walking tours of the city and of different kinds of landmarks and kind of the memory of the city. Um, so I was able to walk around with him. And that was very helpful because you just get a sense of distances and you get a sense of the kind of city within the landscape. And then there were just problems like, you know, when they go out on the jetty, like, where is that jetty? <laughs> like, how do we imagine this? And, you know, how do we imagine like where the tram lines go? Because there's that really beautiful moment in the book when it's kind of like a secret memorial for the dead who are being taken out of the city on the tram and people kind of come between the rocks to secretly throw flowers. And I had a really hard time visualizing <laughs> that. Um, and so in order to kind of try, try to recreate that scene, um, it was very helpful to see the cliff road and to see the gates of the city. All throughout the end of summer and the autumn rains, you could see in the heart of each night, all along the cliff road, strange convoys of trams without passengers wobbling above the sea. The city residents finally figured out what was happening, and despite the patrols that forbade access to the cliff road, groups often managed to slip in among the rocks that overhung the waves, to throw flowers onto the trolley cars as they passed. Then you could hear the trolleys jolting on through the summer night with their cargo of flowers and the dead. That's such an arresting scene, and I must confess it's one that I didn't remember from reading the book 30-odd years ago. And yet, in your translation, I was sort of completely stopped in my tracks, if you'll pardon the you know, inappropriate pun. But yeah, it was, it's such a striking scene, isn't it? And the other thing, you know, there's so many things that I saw, and I'm, I'm, I guess I guess I thought, well, at least I'm a more sophisticated reader than I was when I was 20. That's something. But, you know, th the other thing which I was wondering about was there's so much about light and the sky and the way the light, you know, maybe cuts through a city street or changes and the whole sort of tonality of the book the color of the book you know the the grays and the yellows the yellowish hues or the yellowed and that I mean is that something that you were you were aware of in the modern day Orange or is that is that hard to hard to recapture mm, I wouldn't say that that to me was less of um the connection with modern day Orange, but it really appealed to me as somebody who trained as a lyric poet <laughs> for a really long time. Um, I got my MFA in poetry and, and started translating really as um, a way to make a living after I finished that degree. <laughs> so I thought I would be a poet and I would translate to make a living and it sort of ended up more complicated than that. But uh, yeah, so when I read those passages, you know, they almost have this kind of lyric edge where they have this real lucidity of imagery and there's a lot of restraint in that, too. You know, you, you see what a character is seeing. And from those images, the kind of, as you say so beautifully, the kind of tonality of those images, you get a sense of what they're feeling <laughs> um, without them having to say it. 
And so to me, that was sort of the familiar territory of trying to to make imagery in, in a poem that communicates feeling without, you know, overstepping into a kind of uh, emotional flatness or on the other side, like something too flowery. <laughs> um, so you really have to, there's a hard edge to that lyricism. When Camus is lyrical, it seemed to me it's still done with economy. And I guess where Stuart Gilbert erred was that he didn't do it with economy. But there's another another scene which I hadn't remembered where it's a nightscape, it's the city uninhabited, and he describes just the shapes of the buildings. You know, they're, they're sort of cubic shapes. And then there's the statues. And it's it made me think of something like de Chirico's paintings, you know, those sort of deserted cityscapes. And it's it's an amazing piece of writing, but done, you know, but, but both lyrical and done with incredible economy and strangeness too, which is the other thing which I took from it in your translation. There's just something very strange and alien and, and sort of desolating about it, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that scene of the necropolis where he sort of describes the whole city as if it's become a cemetery. After eleven, plunged into deep night, the city was stone. Under the moonlit skies, it aligned its whitened walls and its unbent streets, never stained by the black mass of a tree, never disturbed by the step of a pedestrian or the cry of a dog. The large, silent city was then no more than a crowd of massive, lifeless cubes, between which the taciturn effigies of forgotten do-gooders or former great men, alone and silenced forever in bronze, tried, with their false faces of stone or of iron, to evoke a degraded image of who the man had been. These mediocre idols ruled under a thick sky, in lifeless intersections, unfeeling brutes who symbolised quite well the immobile reign we had entered into, or at least its ultimate form, that of a necropolis where plague, stone and night would finally silence every voice. I was thinking about that too with, um, I actually had to go back into Camus' work to look for the sources of that lyricism and I actually ended up looking at his his really early lyric essays. <laughs> They're really beautiful. And and I think maybe underappreciated <laughs> in his kind of oeuvre. But the the translations by Ellen Conroy Kennedy of Nuptials and Summer, they're really beautiful. And um, they, those have less restraint. They are much more Baroque. <laughs> but they do have that kind of lyric quality and, and that strangeness too. And so I thought, okay, at least I have a sense of maybe the well that he's drawing from um, yeah. to make these images. Did, can I ask, did you read the book first in translation as a student? Was that how you first encountered it, or did you encounter it first in French? I believe I did read it first in translation. I read it in translation with the original side by side. Um, so it was a seminar that I took in college, and it was a seminar that was, you know, half the students were working in French and the other half in English, and it was sort of like a back and forth. So I think... Yeah, I actually read it in a context that was quite conducive to thinking about translation. And I think it was also 
the kind of thing where, you know, when you're analyzing a text and, and I've actually, I've talked to a few students about this in kind of conversations about the plague, but I got in the habit of checking the French <laughs> um, when I was writing my paper, you know, <laughs> so I didn't write a huge analysis of some image that isn't quite there. <laughs> but it was a great, it was a great introduction to being in that kind of in-between space that translation can create. And then I saw in an interview you did online that you did a sample in order to, to be selected for this for this project. And I wanted to ask you, did you start at the beginning? And how did you approach that that process? I mean, what, what was what was the sort of limbering up? And if you've got the commission, then you can sort of throw yourself wholeheartedly into it and you can visit places and you can read all the all the secondary literature and the earlier works. But if you're doing a sample, I guess you've got to be fairly you know, focused with your time and, and think, but, but at the same time, you've, you've got to have a stance to the text that you can, that you can bring out. So tell, tell me a bit about doing that sample. Yeah, you just kind of cross your fingers and gulp and hope you do right. right. Well, I wondered, yeah, do you do it and think, okay, well, I've given it my best shot in the time I had available and we'll see, you know, fate will, yeah. fate will decide. Well, I try to look at it too, like the, the process of creating any sample it's helpful to also think, like, can I do justice to this writer? <laughs> Is it a match? Not every author, it doesn't work out sometimes, you know? <laughs> and you sit down to try to do the sample and, and you realize that there's something in the tonality that is just like, you know, it, it's slipping away from how you might wish to capture it or how you might wish the voice to sound. I mean, this project is one that I had been thinking about for a long time and was really hoping to get the chance to audition for it. And so I felt like I I had an idea going into it of how I wanted the text to sound. However, I always know that by the time you reach the end of the book, your kind of command of the, the sound of the book and the tone and how, how the voice operates is much better and much more intuitive than at the beginning. So... Yeah, but I was really lucky. I mean, I, I had some colleagues that I shared the sample with. Um, I shared it with my friend Emma Ramadan. I shared it with Alice Kaplan. I shared it with my friend John Palatella. So I had some people look at it and just say, you know, people who like Camus, people yeah. who I knew were fans. And I said, you know, does this feel right? <laughs> does it does it hang together? You know, are you con- are you plausibly convinced by the fabric of this text? Yeah. Did it feel right to you? Were you succeeding in translating what was sort of in your head into things that you were putting down on the page quite quickly? That's always tricky, too, um, because I always try to maintain... This is one thing I love about translation, A, that it can be a kind of apprenticeship to a writer who you love. And it can also be like a way of holding space in your mind between yourself as a reader and reading really deeply into a text and then also the task of kind of creating the craft of another voice and for me it's not just that I you know the way it sounds in my head is how I translate it I try to also complicate that by having another layer of uh, my own kind of translator's restraint (laughs) um so it's it's sometimes possible with a book that is very restrained and very particular in its language to, to be tempted to kind of over-explicate or to put too much of your own emotion as a translator onto the page. And so I try to keep that sort of leap 
between writer and reader, or translator and reader, even in the craft of translation itself. And so for me, you know, the moments where the text is most restrained or the moments where I have to think like, okay, what is like just enough emotional page yes. that a reader can can ha- kind of experience the emotional pull of the text here. And then when you got the commission, how did you feel? Did you, did any part of, you must have felt delighted, of course, but did any part of you feel daunted that here you were doing the first new translation in decades of possibly one of the most widely read French novels, if not the most widely read French novel of the 20th century. Did you, did you sort of gulp and think, okay, well, here we, okay, now, now here we go. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I think I was in a restaurant when I got the email and I just sort of looked at my phone and shouted like, oh shit. <laughs> and everyone looked at me. Um, but <laughs> and you said it's a translation. It's a translation deal. And they, they, all, they all cheered and raised their glasses. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we thought you got engaged or something. <laughs> Much less exciting. Um, but no, uh, so yes, I had a lot of feelings about embarking on this project. The one thing I love about translation is that it is very much a day-by-day practice. There's no way to um, panic about it and prepare and then do it all at the last minute can't. So I really like translation for the kind of daily you know, page count, the daily word by word aspect of it. But all of my feelings about this project were thoroughly complicated by the fact that, you know, about six months into it, the pandemic began, which was a totally, you know, unexpected thing and and something that made me really think about my own, you know, human hubris. Like you think you're working with a text and you think that the plague is sort of an allegorical thing or a thing of the past. And then you realize that, you know, the events of history can also happen to you. It became, you know, something where I couldn't really think as deeply about the past of the novel because it felt so closely connected to what was happening in the world. And, um, you know, it, it was one of those things that was just very strange. Like I would be working on the scene where the doctors are meeting with the prefect of the city to try to convince him to put in more stringent public health measures. And then I would read the paper and, you know, there would be stuff about the CDC and Trump and Fauci. And I would just think like, this is, this is a very bizarre parallel. In the end, that was also something I had to think about and potentially correct for, because this is a book about a plague that was translated during a plague, but it shouldn't really be like a COVID book. So it, no. it should have like a longer life, I think. Um, uh, absolutely. But it certainly, it certainly brings home, you know, as you say, it has tended to be taught and seen very much as an allegory of the Second World War, which is clearly a valid way of approaching it. But what your translation coming out now reveals is that there are, of course, multiple ways of of responding to it, and its its resonances go beyond a straightforward one-to-one correspondence, don't they? Yeah, and I think resonances is a good word, because it also is a book that kind of, it evolves with what you bring to it as well. And, and many of Kim's books do. But I think the strange thing about 
this particular book is that it was always, as you say, kind of interacted with by students and, and teachers as this kind of allegory um, where it was analyzed and different pieces were read as different kinds of, you know, with different kinds of correlations to what was happening in World War II um, and the Nazi occupation of France in particular. I think, you know, it's always strange to read a text at the point where allegory has the potential to collapse. <laughs> you know, the world yes. has come so close to this book that, you know, I heard some students say that it, it felt like nonfiction to them, <laughs> at least yeah. the, the kind of parts where it's talking more about public health measures. And so, you know, it actually, in this weird way, when Kimu was writing it, he drew on all these plague chronicles from previous yeah. centuries. And then we've found in the sense, like we're looking at the plague as if it is an actual plague chronicle, um, which it isn't. But And I was able in the early days of COVID to escape into work and translate something about, you know, something completely different. But you, you couldn't escape it. You know, if you were... If you're watching the news, there it was. And if you were, you know, trying to absorb yourself in your work, there it was in a different, a different form. I mean, what, you know, I don't mean this flippantly, but it must, it must have been hard to maintain your focus, maintain your morale, maintain your output, and particularly in the, the darkest days of COVID. Were you in New York when it was, um, when, you were, when, you were, when you were working on it? So I, I live in Buffalo, New York. I wasn't in New York City. It was, in a way, actually possibly easier for me to maintain my focus because I felt like this book had so much to tell me about what I was experiencing. It was brutal <laughs> to always be immersed in something that had that kind of relevancy, but it was also sort of enlightening, <laughs> um, especially, you know, the moments where he talks about the feelings of exile and, and particularly like exile at home, <laughs> which at first I really had trouble understanding because, yeah, of course, you know, you realize eventually that you may be stuck in a familiar place, but that everything around you has changed. But at first, you know, I, I kind of resisted that and thought, well, you know, why, why does he keep talking about exile in this sense? Because like all of these characters, they, they're experiencing too much of what's familiar. Like it's actually being hollowed out. Everything they know is hollowed out by the kind of inability to get away from it. And yet, you know, as I, I sat at my desk every day, you, know, and you just start to hear the sirens in your neighborhood and things that he describes. And um, yeah, it was it was kind of an unreal um, doubling of experience. The, I was working with the Playad edition, and they're they're very thin pages, and I started to be wary of the ink shadow on the next page of what it would reveal. It's one of the strangest things to ever happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. No, I'm, I'm sure. I just yes, you have to be careful what you choose next in case you've got some peculiar prophetic power. Yeah. <laughs> and did you produce a, a first draft of the whole book, and then did you sort of go back and and work in more detail? You know, as you were saying, by the time you get to the end of that first draft, you've learned things about your own practice and about the, the detail of the book, and then did you begin to? go through it again from the from the start and and work on it more closely yeah so I finished a rough draft before I went to Oran actually because I wanted to know what my questions were and then immediately after I got back from Oran the sort of lockdowns began 
And so I was kind of in the moment of doing the hardest draft. <laughs> um, but I was also back at the beginning of the second draft, back at the beginning of the book as I was working through it. It was, you know, January 2020 when I began the second draft. So just as there was kind of this parallel, a very direct parallel in the events of the epidemic and in the book and in the world. <laughs> but yeah, I usually do, you know, four or five drafts. And in this case, um, I'm not usually someone who tinkers in proofs, but I found myself tinkering. <laughs> I think that was partly because there is this kind of um, balance I tried to reach for between keeping the order of the syntax as much as possible and trying to end paragraphs with the same word and trying to end sentences with the same word and the kind of natural impossibility of that. <laughs> so, yeah, I... You were, you, you were sort of stress testing that to see how far it could be pushed in English. Yeah. And I think I had too many commas in my earlier drafts because I left, I basically left his punctuation as much as I could. And then it, it was really tricky to go back through and like figure out where the text should breathe. Because <laughs> in French, you know, the, there you just can have more commas, more phrases and clauses in a sentence. Um, and in English, it can sound too slow. And so I had to really, I had to let the, the kind of slow leisurely passages find the right, the right degree of slowness to make it feasible and believable in English, <laughs> but to also kind of keep a flavor of that breathiness that's in the French text. And did that involve reading it aloud sometimes? Yes. <laughs> yeah. My friend Alice Kaplan actually read the entire thing aloud to her. <laughs> she was kind enough to listen to it. I also was particularly grateful for the colleagues who were willing to um, read drafts of this because it was hard on them too. Do, do you remember, Laura, any of those sort of last minute, you know, those those sort of I, when I'm doing a translation, there's always a sort of reducing number of things I haven't resolved in my mind. And it sometimes comes down to sort of alter, alternance between two words and I sort of go between the two. Or do you remember some of the sort of those little hardcore things that you still hadn't made a decision on until the proofs were sort of taken from your hands? Yeah, I can think of one. It's kind of silly, but... um there's this word that repeats over and over um, in the two scenes that are about the water and the wind um, when Rio and Taru are kind of standing on that rooftop overlooking the city. Over and over, the word Camus uses is tied um, for like tepid or lukewarm. And Gilbert uses tepid. And while it sounds more like tied, I went with lukewarm eventually because I felt like it had like a more velvety <laughs> um, because we use tepid also has the connotation of being sort of um, unsure or it has kind of an emotional like the reaction could be tepid. <laughs> and I felt like what was in the original there was something a little more expansive, something a little bit more like uh, immersive. <laughs> And so I, I literally the longer, yeah, literally, uh, I went with the longer word. 
I loved your choice of um, squishy for elastique um, when when they're talking about the the body of a dead rat and that sort of yielding quality. And I didn't I didn't go to check what uh, check what Gilbert used, but I, I'm guessing he didn't use squishy. But you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, there's a, there's a very definite sort of well, sometimes sensual, but sometimes sort of tactile, visceral, I guess, sense about your some of your word choices. And what was it? Was um, was squishy a, a dead cert from the start, or was that one that you you had sort of tried different things? And maybe you don't. It's perhaps unfair to ask you if you remember, you know, each adjective choice. No, I I think that one. I think that was a case where the cognate felt a little bit too um, a little too high toned. And I think it's also that sentence is so great because the dead rat sort of sneaks up on you at the end of the sentence. <laughs> like he saves, I think I wrote about this in my translator's note, but he sort of saves the feeling of stepping on it for the very end of the sentence. Those moments, you know, before the epidemic spreads to humans, like the rat epidemic, has, it has a kind of humor to it. I thought that squishy was also a bit fire yeah there are there are moments of black humor i mean very very black humor but there are there are moments like that aren't there and sometimes that comes from the narrator's sort of slightly distancing diction doesn't it or the way that the, the, the tone in which something is related as black humor does creep in there's a black irony to <laughs> some of the most difficult passages Especially, you know, there's that scene where the characters encounter like a colonial official in a bar and Camus reproduces, you know, what he's saying. And it's, you know, what he's saying is horrific. And also in the moments, too, when the prefect of the city says things that are pretty horrific, there's a kind of dark irony to Rita's responses that I think it would have been easy to flatten it out. But I think it's really important. One thing which I really noticed reading a translation, which the twenty-year-old me had completely missed, was the soundtrack of the book. There's a lot of sound in the book. You know, the twenty-year-old me remembers set pieces, dialogue, exchanges of views, sometimes you know maybe slightly sententious sort of formulae. But there's a whole soundtrack. There's the sounds of of wind and sirens and natural sounds and mechanical sounds and all sorts of things. And that you know, I know I know from experience, it's hard it's hard to capture things like sound, isn't it? When you're when you're translating. Yeah, and then there's that like eerie hum in the sky of the plague yeah. <laughs> the whole time. And that was another word I I agonized over if it was a whistle or a hum. <laughs> And, um, yeah, <laughs> in French, like, sifflement, it can yeah. be both. <laughs> and so I, yeah, that, that, I love the soundtrack of the book. And actually there's, there's a, there's a kind of theme song of the book, which is the St. James Infirmary. Yes. Actually, I have my husband to thank <laughs> because he, he actually tracked down like an old record of it so that I could play it. <laughs> and then there was, when I was working on the book, I would actually play every morning before I started working. And it's it's such a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful, sad song. It's just, you know, anything you can do to try to make that atmosphere. I have to say, yeah, being in my house with the snow outside and that music playing and the sirens in the streets and a plague going on, <laughs> it was a very, it was a very strange atmosphere. 
I, I, it made me also think, I, was, I happened to be in New York when 9-11 occurred, and it made me think of that very strange time when the soundtrack of the city completely changed and everything was, was muffled, but there was these sort of processions of, of sirens, you know, would suddenly sort of tear down avenues and then sort of silence would come back or, the, the, you know, heavy machinery and things. And that sort of soundtrack element also brought that um, into my mind of how a city, you know, can be very quickly sort of completely transformed into, into something very different and very alien from, from itself. Yeah, and that idea of people just being out walking all the time because they, they have no other activity to do. It was very quiet here a lot of the time, but it is, I think the book has that kind of alternation too between like moments of horrific sound and then the real silence that comes in the wake of that. And actually silence was something that was very integral to Camus' style. He grew up in a house with, with a mother who um, didn't really speak. And so there's kind of these moments where you feel the, the pressure of silence in a room. And um, actually, you know, when Sartre reviewed The Stranger, he said this, the sentences were like islands. And the book could have been titled, you know, translated from silence, whatever that means. <laughs> but as a translator, I really, I, I love that turn of phrase and love the idea of a book that somehow tries to create these moments when the world gets quiet. You know, it's almost a cliche to mention John Cage here, but, you know, it, there's a little bit of that sense of like what trickles yeah. in um, when when you actually listen to the city and when you're kind of immersed in a place that has lost its usual sense of sound. Another thing which I have to say which struck me, which didn't strike the 20-year-old me, and I know it's been it's been written about a great deal in the last few decades, is the is how the Arab world is so absent, really, in a book that talks about community and solidarity and collective action and responsibility and all, and all those things. And I know, you know, I know it's a very big and a very complex question, but I was really struck by it, rereading it, just how, you know, Rambert, the journalist, comes from Paris at the start to investigate the sanitary conditions of the Arab community. And apart from that, I think, that, and there's a bit of inter, intertextual reference to Meursault and l'étranger killing an Arab on a beach. But apart from that, and then there are sort of, you know, things one can read obliquely, like references to outlying suburbs or, you know, the neighbourhoods, which are, you know, and the density of housing and conditions and so on. But, and I know he was writing in the 1940s, and I know it was a different world, and I know it's a very big and a very complex question, but I'm sure it's one that you've reflected on, and it's one that you will probably have been asked about. How do you respond to that sort of absence in the text, if I can put it that way? Yeah, it's a major flaw in the book. And I don't think there's any way around that. I think that there are ways that writers end up with a kind of exclusionary aspect of their imagination. I think that there are these kind of oblique references. You know, for example... Camus writes about the camps in the city. And specifically, you know, we see the one where the magistrate is interned in quarantine. And then he has this kind of other passage that says, you know, there were other camps in the city that the narrator didn't see and can't write about because he doesn't have firsthand experience. And um, 
You know, those moments, it's kind of like he's referring to the kind, the cordon sanitaire, you know, these really brutal policies under the French occupation where Native people were kind of forced into camps to try to prevent infection, but the conditions of these places were violent and inhumane. In that same scene in the bar that I mentioned where the colonial official is talking about them, uh, he also references that kind of cordon sanitaire, but it is... It is a very odd portrayal of a city, even if Oran at the time was quite a segregated city. Camus actually makes reference to the village Negre, which I left in its original French because of the history of that place, which was a, a kind of ghetto where the native population were forcibly removed um, and forcibly resettled there. And so there are these kind of whispers at the edges of the text but they don't come into the real characters in the book. I think that's a kind of example of Camus' whiteness. <laughs> he did, you know, write well about, and he was a good critic of colonialism in many of his journalistic essays, but he kind of blinks here. And there's actually, in one of the earlier versions of the manuscript, he actually talks about Arabs coming into the city at market and selling their wares at market. And then he struck it out of the final version. Camus, perhaps rightly, he limits himself to his own experience in some ways. Like each of the characters in the novel has a kind of element of Camus' own life. He sort of refracts himself into the various aspects of the characters, you know, like like Rambert, Camus was separated from his wife. Like Rieu, <laughs> he's kind of um, somebody who comes from a poor background who has sort of thrown himself into this resistance. Like Taru, he has this love of the absurd and is kind of a historian of what has no history. So each of the characters has a sort of piece of himself. And I think that that is also part of why the range of characters, though they have quite emotional range, like in their identities, is quite narrow. And their gender is quite narrow. And their gender, yes. <laughs> Although I do really, I am fascinated by the character of Madame Rieu, um, Rieu's mother. And there's this moment in the novel when, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> she's, she's kind of helping Teru to die. And he writes about her that she was so full of shadows that she could keep up with any light, even if it was the light of the plague. I've always wondered what that meant. And, and if anyone <laughs> listens to this and, and has a critical interpretation, I would love to read it. <laughs> and would, would that be in time to go into your... Um, you've, you've written with Alice Kaplan a sort of journal of your plague year. Is that a way you press? <laughs> It is. It's not exactly. With Camus, sorry. Say say a little bit about what the book is. It's coming out next year. I understand. What what is is no. I'll let you. I'll let you explain it rather than. <laughs> I I, I, it. I think it's really funny. I, it's by no means like trying to chronicle. Actually, we we were asked to write something, but neither one of us wanted to write it as kind of like an I. So together we wrote it to be um, more of a dialogue. Um, and also I think the, there, there are essays about working with this book during the past 
two years, and they are um, they're reflections on various aspects of the novel. There's an essay on rats and the swimming scene. Um, there's essays on the city of Oran and the kind of historical layers. Um, there's essays on on the voice of the we, Dr. Rear, and on the separated lovers, many things like this. But basically, I think they kept us sane. Each week, uh, we would send these essays back and forth. And they really um, just allowed us to kind of have a space where I could put down and she could put down some of what it was like to be so closely tied to this text during this particular historical moment. And that must have made a real difference to the really not feeling that you were, you were on your own. Yeah, it was really helpful to have a kind of interlocutor. Of, it made me feel like also the insights of the book, reading it during COVID, the insights that came from it, as well as the darkness, I was able to sort of balance and keep, hang on to to what I had learned from the book, as well as just the kind of general feeling of working with something that was eerily close to, to life. I think if I hadn't written those essays, then the feeling of that project might have just disappeared <laughs> like I might have repressed it <laughs> and and uh so in the interest of not <laughs> repressing it it was helpful to write it down I was talking to Laura Maris Laura's translation of the plague is currently available in hardback from Knopf I'm guessing that a paperback edition may appear later this year States of Plague reading Albert Camus in a pandemic which Laura co-authored with Alice Kaplan, will be published by the University of Chicago Press later this year. And there's more about Laura and her work on her website, lauramaris.com. On the Hedgehog and Fox website, you'll find links to over 80 more episodes of this programme. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on any interviews you've missed. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.